Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what's up? I forgot to think about a response for this week. What's up with you? (laughs) (laughs) It is dark and rainy here and I hate it, but I'm on PTO. So I just recently got out of bed. So yeah, things are good. I can't believe that Christmas is like a little over a week away. That's not good. (laughs) Not good at all. Very poor timing. Yeah, I know, right? But without further ado, today we have a special guest on the show, Daniel Coulson. Daniel, do you want to give a brief introduction? Let the people know who you are? I'm Daniel Coulson. I've been writing Ruby for seven-ish years. I changed careers. I used to be a professor of music theory and composition, and that was good fun. And decided academia wasn't for me and switched over into writing Ruby. Ended up as the maintainer of FactoryBot for a little while, somehow, for some reason. That was fun. Nowadays, I'm trying to get more familiar with Ruby source code. What is FactoryBot for some of our listeners who don't know what that is? Yeah, FactoryBot is a tool for creating test data. It's most often used in combination with active records to create test records, but it can be used for creating any kind of test data. So it gives you a simple syntax to create data in your tests and only specify the specific bits of data that you care about. So like if a user has a name and an email and you need a user in your test, you can do factorybot.createUser and you'll get a user that has a name and an email. But like if your test doesn't care that it's a specific name, you don't have to specify that specific name in your test. There are defaults that you get. But if you have a test that does care about a specific name, you can pass that in. So the idea is that it keeps the data that your test cares about right there in the test. If in practice, that always doesn't happen. Like stuff gets set up, moved into like setup blocks or RSpec setup, and like the test data ends up moving far away from the test. So it's not a perfect tool. Did you ever work at Thoughtbot? I did work at Thoughtbot. Yes. Okay. I was yeah. like, wait, how does he get GitHub and maintaining FactoryBot? And I was like, oh, okay, okay. So you did work at Thoughtbot. That's cool. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was maintaining FactoryBot while I was there. Gotcha. Okay. That there's a missing puzzle piece I didn't even think about. Now, I know a lot of people who are either programmers now or they were in the music industry and now they're programmers. And I know a lot of like music grads. Do you think there's any correlation between like the skills that you learn as a musician and to translate that to programming? Yeah, there seems to be something there. The way I've thought about it is that in both cases, you're working with a symbolic language that requires interpretation. So there's something there. For me, composition and writing code kind of scratch the same itch, like solving these abstract problems. It's got to be a similar part of the brain, I think. Interesting. Yeah, because I know several people, so that's cool. So before we get into reading Ruby source, because I believe that's kind of what we want to get to, let's talk about reading source code in general. What are your thoughts around that? How much of your time is spent reading source code versus writing it? I'm going to say that I spend like 90% of my time reading code or like reading things. But that includes code that I wrote myself. You know, maybe that inflates it slightly. But yeah, there's reading the code in the application you're working in. There's reading the code of the libraries that you're using, the tools that you're using. Because sometimes the documentation does tell you what you need and you need to dig a little deeper. Why am I not understanding what this library is doing? Or maybe there's a bug there. And then as you're working, you can't keep a whole program in your head. 
I can't keep very much in my head at one time at all. So I'm doing a lot of reading, sketching what I'm reading, taking notes on what I'm reading so that I can speed it up the next time around, things like that. What about y'all? What percentage of time do you think you spend reading code? 90. That sounds about right for me. I do a lot of code reading, especially gem source code like you're talking about. I also just read it for fun because reading code is always really hard for me. And that translates to code review is really hard because if you're not able to really reason about like the code you're reading and see how it pictures into the full system, then your code review is going to be pretty lackluster. And so I was having a lot of trouble writing good code review. And I was like, these people look at my code and they're like, oh, well, this is wrong and this is wrong. And like, you forgot about this. And I'm like, how do they know about that? And so I spent a lot of time just reading code, reading source, figuring out how other people were doing things. And that got me better at doing code reviews, but it also made me into this type of person. It's like, I don't know how to do this, but I know that this library over here does something very similar. I can jack that method or GitLab does something really similar to this and their code's open source and I can jack that method. And I've been really good about doing that. So I'm more of a source code pirate. What about you, Julie? It's very interesting because as you both were answering this question, I was thinking about my learning journey. And when I was starting out doing a final project for bootcamp that I was in, I didn't do a lot of reading of any code, which is kind of unfortunate because Daniel, I think when we had first chatted, you had mentioned that you were reading source code pretty early on. So one of my questions that I was going to ask you is when should I start reading source code? I feel like I'm a year and a half into my professional career and I'm finally now taking a look at some source code, but I feel like you had started earlier and I think that benefited you a lot. I think you probably are reading source code, but maybe you mean gem source code or like library source code in particular. You're reading source code as you're working on an application. So there's got to be some amount of reading code. I was thinking of when I was doing my project, I wasn't looking at any source code because I didn't have a job or any source code to look at. And so I don't know how I managed to just write the code that I was writing, but you're right. When I did start my professional career, I started looking at more code, but I also feel like at that time I was kind of just copying and pasting and not trying to understand what the code is doing. And I was just putting it in there and then making the tests run and making the tests work. I do that still, by the way, I copy yeah. and paste code. Like and li- <laughs> literally what I was just saying, like I am a source code pirate because I copy and paste code from other places. I think it's like once you get more and more confident and your skills increase, that's when you start becoming more like understanding the code you're copying. But you are definitely reading source code. The Rails scaffolds that you run generate source code that you have to read, right? I'm not sure exactly when it, happened for me, but there was a point where I noticed that I was stepping through a debugger a little deeper than I had before. When I first started, it was like, you know, debug my code. And then the moment I got out of my code into a file that I didn't write, it's like, well, I don't know. This is just how this code works. And then the next time, maybe I dug a little deeper. At a certain point, I was like opening up the library itself and just reading the library. I don't know exactly when that happened. There's some risk starting out that you want to do all the things and learn all the things. So probably at the very beginning, it doesn't make sense to try to understand all the things. So I'm not sure I can answer the question of when is the time. But if you get to a piece of code and you're like, I wonder how this works and you have the time, then maybe go figure out how it works. Just like trust your curiosity and follow that. 
what ways do you like to read source code? Do you like to use bundle open and then the gem name to like see in your editor? Do you like to use RubyMine to do that? Do you like to use GitHub? What's your tools for doing this? Yeah, I do a fair amount of bundle open. And my favorite command actually is bundle pristine, which gives you back the original source code once you've mucked it up too bad. So I'll like bundle open the library and mess around with everything and put print statements everywhere and then completely break the library. But then you can walk it all back with bundle pristine. You don't have to like hunt down every debugger and print statement that you put in there. You run bundle pristine after you've already mucked up the bundle open? Yeah, once you've learned what you needed to learn, debugged what you needed to debug, rather than having to clean up the library that you messed around with, Bundle Pristine, the name of the library, will give you a fresh copy, re-download it or whatever. Nice. A nice little cleanup at the end. Before I knew about that command, I used to always forget one or two print statements, usually in Rails. And I would run my code and be like, why is there always this weird line here that makes no sense? Where is that coming from? And it was always just me doing some weird thing in the library weeks before and I forgot I'd done it. Does doing rerunning bundle install do the same thing? Because I have never used bundle pristine. I know what it is, but I muck around in the source code all the time, but I've never used that. So I'm like, how am I resetting my state? Because I know I'm doing it somehow. I think it maybe maybe. bundle install. I've never thought about it, but yeah, maybe so. At a certain point, I find if I want to do things in multiple files, Bundle open gets a little annoying after a while. Also, like sometimes I want to run the test suite of the library that I'm working in. I find actually reading tests can be a really helpful way to understand a library, like actually start in the test file. And like the highest level test file you can find, one that's testing like the behavior of the library, not like some nitty gritty detail of how it works internally. It's like a high level integration type test or something like that, if you can find one. How might you look for one of those tests? If you can find a test that does a thing that's mentioned in the documentation, thinking of FactoryBot as an example, there's FactoryBot Define is like the first thing that you would call as a user of FactoryBot. FactoryBot Define, open a block, and then do some stuff. So I might search through the test directory for a FactoryBot Define and see if there's a test that does that. There are probably a lot in FactoryBot that do that. Then, you know, find... Maybe a call to factorybot.create or something like that, which is another commonly used method that's part of the like public API of that library. Yeah. Like if I'm searching, what I'll do is I'll say only search in this folder. And then I will search all the tests for certain keywords, just even using a certain method that I'm trying to use, because that will then get you closer and closer to what Daniel's talking about of like, okay, well, I found in here, like this is using dot define, but then you can find a dot define test and you're like, oh, perfect. And then like, what does that test do? And maybe there's others. And like, you kind of just keep going up and up and up until you find the code that you're looking for. Because like Daniel's saying, the test can be supplemental to the documentation in a lot of places because a lot of library authors may not write really good documentation, but they might write really excellent tests. So those tests can be a really big clue as to figure out what you're trying to do with a certain method or something. That's a good point. Is that similar to when I'm trying to read code at work and I might not understand what something is doing? I'll go to the test file for that code and then like the test is written in a little bit. Yes, it's more English reading. 100%. Yeah, you're bringing up something. I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but the difference between what you're doing in the application you use at work and stepping one level deeper into a library or framework is actually the same thing. There's no real difference. 
we have a sort of mental separation, I think, because like it's a library that we had to download. It's like declared in a different way in our library, right? There's a gem file and it gets installed in some magical way to some magical directory somewhere. So there's a little barrier there, but the code itself is not really different. It's just the same process. And all that code will get included too when you run that app in production too. So that library code is also a part of your application. But yeah, there was a certain point that I had a mental shift of this is like other code that just has to do what it does and I just have to use it the way it's documented to this is all code in my application. I can do what I want with it. That's sort of what led me into open source, I think, as well. It's like changing these libraries doesn't really feel that different to me than changing the application I'm working on day to day anymore. That's kind of my job now. I work at GitHub on the Ruby architecture team. A lot of our time is spent making changes in Rails or in some other Ruby library or in Ruby itself. And I've really appreciated on my team. We're always looking for the right layer to fix a problem. John Hawthorne talks about this all the time. It's like, if you have a performance problem, maybe it's your application that has a performance problem. Or maybe it's a problem that every Rails application has and you can fix it in Rails. Or it's a problem that every Ruby application has and you can fix it there. So it's nice to be able to kind of go between those layers without too much effort. So you were talking earlier, it sounds like a nice segue, about starting to get more into reading Ruby. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I've been reading Ruby for a long time and like always wanted to be able to contribute to Ruby, but it seemed really overwhelming at first. See Ruby, the source code for Ruby, the language, specifically the implementation that is written in C. There's like other implementations of Ruby, JRuby, TruffleRuby, and things like that. Anyway, C Ruby is a lot more difficult to read than Ruby code, at least for me. I don't know. Me too. C is weird. And there's all these macros, which get rewritten. I don't know. Macros are not a thing we have in Ruby. So it's, there's some indirection that can be a little bit difficult to read. But I got interested in reading Ruby, I don't know, maybe five years ago after reading Ruby Under a Microscope, which is a fantastic book that kind of talks about some of the internals of how Ruby works. It's like, oh, geez. I don't know. I found that book fairly approachable. It's like, maybe I can get into this too. And then kind of that got put on hold for a few years. But now I'm on a team with some people that know C and John Hawthorne on my team is a Ruby committer. And like, hmm, with all these people around, like now seems like a really good time to try to dig a little deeper and see if I really can do this too. So I've been opening up files and trying to figure things out. Had a couple of PRs merged to Ruby, which is exciting. Congrats. Oh, congrats. That's awesome. Thank you for your work on behalf of all of us. I'm assuming you had to learn some C then. Yeah, I did. That's been a project over the past six months or so. There's not that much to the language in one sense. The syntax is not that hard, but there's just like endless ways that you can shoot yourself in the foot in C. It's memory leaks and, you know, reading parts of memory that you're not supposed to be reading. It just seems way too easy to cause a really bad problem. So that's a little scary. I guess for context, just for the listeners who've never seen or written in C, and if I say this wrong, please correct me. One of the hardest parts of C is that, you know, in Ruby, Ruby is handling memory management for you. You're not telling, hey, Ruby, like I want this data stored in this registry on the CPU. 
but in C, you have to do a lot more of like, okay, well, we're going to push this into this registry and, you know, on this stack. And like, there's a lot more of like actual almost math that goes into it. And like the arrays that we take for granted, how it's dynamic for us. And we don't have to think in advance how many elements we're going to keep in this array. C, we actually have to think about that, right? You can read off the end of an array. You can just read garbage. It's not part of the array that, anyway, yeah. There's protections that are missing. Ruby just resizes it under the hood for you to be large enough to store whatever you want to put in it, which is great. I don't really want to have to think about the size of an array. Ruby's a great language. I want to take a second to thank Andy Kroll for personally sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. Julie and I are really excited with what Andy is doing currently for juniors in the community by organizing First Ruby Friend a way for early career devs to connect with volunteer mentors in the Ruby community to help further them in their careers. If you're interested in being a mentor or a mentee, go on over to firstrubyfriend.org and sign up. Andy also has an awesome newsletter called One Ruby Thing that we definitely recommend at onerubything.com, where you can get a new Ruby and Rails tip delivered straight to your inbox. If you're looking to level up, this is a great resource that is free to the community and friendly for all levels of expertise. A big thank you again for Andy for sponsoring today's episode and look for links to First Ruby Friend and One Ruby Thing in the show notes. What's been the hardest part of learning C? At the moment, it's like the I don't really know what I don't know kind of problem. When you first start a new thing, I'm doing my best in learning as I need to, but there's phases of like overconfidence, like, yeah, I got this. And then it crashes down. It's like, oh, geez, I don't know anything, do I? So I don't know. It's not so bad. But a lot of the time, I really have no idea what I'm doing. It's kind of exciting, though, actually, to be in that place again. I don't feel like that when I'm writing Ruby as much anymore, at least not with like Ruby, the language and the syntax. There's plenty of hard problems, but in C, it's just like, I don't know, everything is new and scary, but it's exciting. I get that. I'm learning Swift right now and it is exciting. It's like, oh, how do I make an array? You get to go back down all the way to where you were, like however long it was. And you're like, oh, well, there's all these new problems. And I have to figure out how data is stored and how do loops work and all these common things that are common across all programming languages. But it is like, it's like an adventure. It's fun. Did you feel like learning C and working in Ruby has made you even know Ruby even more deeply than you had before? Yeah, I think so. The reason I'm hesitating is like some of the knowledge isn't necessarily practical. Like I'm going to write better Ruby code. It's interesting to know how it's working under the hood but it's not always useful for writing Ruby programs. I think it's useful for like building knowledge of programming in general and having different ways of thinking about things. But I know like knowing how the virtual machine works in Ruby doesn't really help you write day-to-day Ruby probably. I don't know. Maybe somebody would disagree with me, but I think that's true. You're not into how the best way to optimize garbage collection yet level of C. So the... Last thing I worked on in Ruby was, I keep mentioning John Hawthorne. It was his idea. I worked with him on the Ruby architecture team at GitHub. So he noticed an issue where somebody was trying to do this micro optimization. Instead of calling the max method on an array of two items, somebody noticed that was like slightly faster if you did an if else. Like if item one is greater than item two, then return item one, otherwise return item two. So you can do that kind of micro-optimization if you want. I don't necessarily think that's a good idea. 
I like the max method. It reads better. But anyway, yeah, John had an idea of how to improve the speed of max in that case so that it would be just as fast. So that's a kind of interesting change in perspective, maybe after digging into Ruby. If you notice a performance thing, hmm, does it have to be that way? So yeah, maybe my attitude will shift a little bit as I'm writing Ruby. Like, it's not my fault. Maybe it's Ruby's fault. Maybe I can fix it. 100%. How do you determine if something is faster, like that to array using if else is faster than max? So there's a benchmark library built into Ruby. And then there's another library that is slightly more useful called benchmark IPS, iterations per second IPS. I use IPS all the time. And you can throw two different bits of code at this tool and it will tell you which one can do more iterations per second. So it's useful yeah. for doing micro benchmarks of two related things. Yeah, getting into all those like performance tools like IPS and there's a few others out there that are kind of popular. It made me really wish I'd paid attention in stats class because I was like, oh, maybe that part would have been helpful because like, I don't know how to make much of these numbers anymore. So do you find yourself using benchmarking a lot, it sounds like? Yeah. Anytime you're doing any kind of performance work, you want to be measuring something. Otherwise, you're dreaming. <laughs> I mean, you could do a lot of pretend performance work, but if you're not measuring a thing, like, what are you doing? It's hard to know. Right. While working on Ruby, I realized there's also this whole like tool for benchmarking Ruby itself, like benchmarking Ruby against other builds of Ruby. So you can like benchmark the commit of Ruby that you're working on against what's the current main branch of Ruby, which is really useful. And there's like a whole suite of different benchmarks you can run. They're all written in these YAML files, which is kind of interesting. So I added a couple for a recent commit. It was fun, but it was very easy. And I could see like, oh yeah, my commit makes this particular kind of thing slightly faster. Very also, cool. you want to make sure that like you might improve the speed of one thing and then accidentally make the speed of another thing worse. So it's good to have some baselines for those things. I think I just found a new tool that I'm going to play around with. So thank you so much for that. I wanted to go back a little bit when you were talking about going deeper into Ruby, learning C. I mean, those things might not be practical. Maybe there are, but I also wanted to bring up that I'm reading The Well-Grounded Rubyist and inside one of the chapters, it was mentioning something about which came first, class or object. And when the book was trying to explain it, it said something like, the explanation is kind of out of the scope of this book, but here's like a high level answer. And I didn't feel like it was enough for me. I felt like I want to understand more. So I feel like at some point I will probably dig a little bit deeper and kind of understand the, I guess, Ruby under the hood, which brings me back to like way in the beginning of the conversation, you had mentioned that you read Ruby under a microscope. Is that a book that beginners could read or should we have some kind of experience before reading that one? That's a good question. I think I was a couple of years in when I read that book. It's hard to answer that kind of question in a general way, I think. I think some beginners would probably read it and love it. And some might get overwhelmed at having too much knowledge. So maybe try it. And if it seems like too much, try it again in a couple of years. 
To be fair, I feel like The Well-Grounded Rubyist is a book that I did read very early on and I read a little bit and I stopped and I read it again after some time and then I stopped. And this is my third take at reading it. And I feel like now that I've known Ruby for maybe, I would say a good one to two years, I feel like since I'm not doing full Ruby at work, I don't know what the actual number is, but I feel like I'm able to read it without just reading it. I'm reading it with like asking myself questions and trying to understand a little bit more. So I feel like any technical book can be the same where you can just try it out. And if it doesn't work, you can try again later. This particular book for me, Ruby Under a Microscope, I started reading it again this year after having looked at some Ruby source code. And it's a whole different book now. So it's been one for me that warranted revisiting. And it's nice to have read some code and struggled with it a bit. There's some hard to read bits in Ruby. I mean, there's a lot that's really hard to read. There's some files that are related to specific classes like array.c. There's some files that you can like open up and kind of make sense of. And then there's gc.c, which is all garbage collector code. I am scared of that file still. I don't know. I think I could probably figure it out, especially if I ask some people for help along the way, but it's long and complicated. So I tend to shy away from it. Having sat with some of those more difficult files and then going back and reading the book again and seeing how those parts of the code are described. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, now that makes sense. It's sometimes easier to learn something if you've tried it and then not really understood it or like learned it wrong or something. You had brought up a term that I did not know about. I think you called it a backwards classroom. Oh yeah, flipped classroom. Yeah, flipped. The, okay. the teacher and me coming back. Flipped classroom is the idea that instead of taking the classroom, like lecturing on the new material in class and then giving homework based on that material, you give homework, which is learn this new concept. And then when students come to class, you do what would normally be the homework. You do the problems and you help people through the problems. I did a little bit with that when I was teaching and it seemed to work really well. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had that growing up. I think it would have really helped me out. I couldn't sit and listen to a lecture. So I felt like I was doing that anyways, but I didn't get the benefit of doing the homework with the teacher to help me. I was not a good lecturer. I had to interact with the students. So I gave a conference talk at the last RailsConf. And I think that might be part of the reason why I was so nervous. Lecturing is just not really my thing. Most of my classes, I was asking questions directly to students or we working on a problem on the board or in groups or whatever. But rarely was I just standing in front of the room talking for a whole class. I don't know, just never quite shit with me. Do you think you could do a conference talk like that? Because I've seen interactive conference talks before and they're usually quite fun. That's a good idea. I'll have to think about that. If you have any examples, I would love to see them. The ones I'm thinking about, off the top of my head, I don't know if the videos are live yet. I'll see if I can find some for you. I know Drew Bragg comes first to mind. He did a game show at Sin City Ruby. It was so much fun. He brought someone out of the audience specifically to be like the main speaker for the audience. But then the audience was also encouraged to participate when that person was struggling. So it was so much fun. I remember that talk very, very well because of how interactive it was. And listeners, you will be able to see something similar because Drew Bragg also gave that talk at RubyConf Mini. 
I thought he did. I didn't want to say it in case he didn't, but yeah. So whenever those videos are live, he did a great job. Uh, since he Ruby, so I'm assuming he did a great job again. Based on what you said about it, it sounds like it was slightly different, like maybe a slightly different format, but it was good fun. I think the audience had a lot of fun participating. If your talk was in the early morning or late afternoon, like their timing, but I think there's definitely room for commerce talks, in my opinion, at least for them to be more interactive, kind of what you're talking about, like more of a back and forth, more of a like, okay, we're going to talk through and work through this problem versus I'm just going to sit here and talk at you, which is like what Julie said. I also don't receive a lot out of that. So if you want to give that type of talk, I just think there's uh, definitely space for it. And I would hands down participate. I chose when I went to RailsConf to go to the workshops for that reason, because I thought they would be more interactive and they were more interactive than just kind of sitting and watching a lecture, which I feel like I could do that when the recording comes because I can pause it and then go take a break and come back. I haven't been to too many workshops at conferences. I think because I'm always overwhelmed at the time commitment. They're usually longer than a talk. And I'm always so fried at those conferences from all the other things that I'm like, workshop sounds so overwhelming, but maybe I'll give it a go. The one time I went was at RailsConf, the last RailsConf, and the Wi-Fi was down. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. And gosh, they did the best possible job they could have given the scenario. But yeah, it was tough not to have Wi-Fi. Yep, lots of things to consider. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything else you want to tell the listeners about reading source code, reading Ruby, anything else you're working on, FactoryBot? I wrote a library for profiling FactoryBot called FactoryBot Profile. I might have to grab that. There's another FactoryBot Profiling library as part of the test prof suite of test tools. And I didn't end up using that one because it was hard to bring into our application at GitHub. It does a bunch of monkey patching. And I already told one of the maintainers of that library that my main beef with it is you can't easily pull in one of the tools. You have to kind of pull in all of them. So I wrote a different tool that works based on the instrumentation that is already part of FactoryBot rather than monkey patching FactoryBot. It builds on top of the instrumentation that's already there. And I use that to profile GitHub's test suite. And we spend a lot of time building records in our test suite, a lot of time. And so I'm currently working on making that number smaller. Cool. Well, Daniel, we'll put a link to your profile and live in the show notes. I will definitely be checking that out because that is something that we're doing. And TestProf, which is a library to profile tests with a bunch of different tools in it that Daniel mentioned earlier, it is heavy. There are a lot of tools in there. And I definitely know that we could optimize some of our factory work. So I will definitely check that out. And hopefully the listeners will as well. Where can people find you online if they want to keep up with what you're doing? I'm uh, not really like doing a huge amount of social media stuff these days. I'm around. The two handles that I use are both esoteric musical references. One is composer inter alia, composer as in music writer, and inter alia is Latin for among other things, whatever. I was still mostly like a composer when I made that. That's my GitHub handle. And then the other one I sometimes use in places is Dodeca Daniel. The 12-sided shape. I like it. Yeah. And there happen to be 12 musical notes. So it's another musical reference. I like it. I took Latin. So I was like, that word sounds familiar. (laughs) That's clever. Yeah. I like it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And for the listeners don't know, you rescheduled this. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm in the fan clubs for sure. 
Well, Julie, I will catch you next week. To the listeners, we will catch y'all next week. Have a great wind down towards the holidays, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone.